Hi, I'm Will Schwalbe, and you're listening to But That's Another Story. This week, we're bringing you a different kind of episode, a live panel that we taped at the Book Expo of America last summer. I sat down with authors Lee Bardugo, Wyatt Moore, and Rich Benjamin for a conversation about the books that have shaped our lives. Enjoy. Now we're going to start with Wyatu Moore. Wyatu is the author of She Would Be King. She's the founder of One More Book, a nonprofit that works to publish culturally relevant books and establish bookstores in countries with low literacy rates and underrepresented cultures. Wyatu's work has been published in The Atlantic, The Rumpus, and Guernica magazine. But today we're going to talk about a piece of writing that was particularly important to her. Now, Wyatu, I want to start by asking you a little bit about how you grew up, where you grew up, and what it was like coming to the United States. I immigrated to the United States when I was five years old from Liberia. My father, two sisters, and I, we relocated to America, and we actually lived uptown in my mom's dorm room at Columbia. Don't tell them. And when she was finished with school, they then had to decide what we were going to do because the country was so devastated by the war. So we moved around quite a bit. We lived in Connecticut and Memphis, and we settled in Texas when I was eight. And so that's where I spent my formative years. But obviously, Liberia was always a part of me. What was the uh, transition like to the U.S.? What was it like for you as a child to uh, come here? It was pretty shocking. I mean, I was shy, I was a recluse, and I was still dealing with some of the psychological remnants of, of war, but I very quickly had to mature because in many ways my parents depended on me. And when we asked you for a book that changed your life, You mentioned a a really beautiful book called Mufaro's Beautiful Daughters by John Steptoe. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that book and how you came across it? Yeah, so I was seven years old the first time Mufaro's Beautiful Daughters was actually read to me by one of my teachers. And she read it to the class, and as I said, I was shy and still dealing with some of the psychological remnants of the war. And when she read it, it was the first time that a book about Africa at that age had been read to me that didn't include animals because the first few books that were being read in in my two years here, it was Anansi and it always had like an elephant or or something like that, but Mufaro's Beautiful Daughters presented Africans as people. And that was novel and shocking and my teacher saw me unfold while she was reading it and so she actually later ended up giving me the book and it had a great impact on me. She gave you the classroom copy of Mufaro's Beautiful Daughter? Yeah, she did. She did. Now, I was uh, at William Morrow and Company when we first published Mufaro's Beautiful Daughters, and I was just blown away by the elegance and beauty of the illustrations. They are spectacular. Um, Can you describe the book a little bit uh, to people here? Yeah, so it is, I would say, a version, an iteration of the Cinderella story. There are two princesses, and there is an older witch who tricks them on a journey that they're making, I believe, to a well. And of course, the kinder sister, she's the one who's chosen the witch, ends up being the prince, 
and it's just a beautiful tale. The cover of the book is illustrated beautifully. It was familiar to me at seven years old because it featured an African woman who was wearing a lapa and she had a head tie on with a comb and, I, and it was so familiar that it, it had an impact on me because all of a sudden I saw myself and I saw people who, who uh, looked like kin. And I, I gather you have a niece who's a big reader, is that correct? Yeah, so recently, my sister, she called me, I have four nieces, and my sister called me and she said, hey, Faith has been talking about this book that was read to her by her teacher, and, and Faith, just for some context, so I was raised in a community that was predominantly white, it was like 10% African American population, and of that black population, we knew no families that were African, and so it could sometimes be lonely, and Faith is raised in a similar, similar place. It's like nor a suburb, somewhat rural, north of Houston. And she is the minority within a minority as well, very few African-Americans. And then of that population, she's the only African family. And so she called me and she said, Faith has been rambling about this book. And it's, a, it's about these African princesses. There's a witch. And one of the sisters is good. And I said, Mufaro's beautiful daughters. <laughs> and she said, yes. And so my, my niece was jumping up in the background. I actually ended up ordering the book and sending it to her. And it's profound how 23 years later, this book still has that impact. Representation still has that impact. Being able to be affirmed through literature, seeing yourself affirmed and knowing that you exist through the arts is really poignant and important. Well, now I'm going to go to Lee next. And so to my left is Lee Bardugo. She is the creator of the Grishaverse, which includes the Shadow and Bone trilogy, the Six of Crows duology, and the Language of Thorns. And she has more to come. She also wrote Wonder Woman Warbringer. Now, you've probably seen Lee's work in many anthologies and lots of other places. And if that wasn't awesome enough, I should mention she's also in a band. I am new to Lee's work myself. I started reading one of her books. And I have to say, um, if I didn't have this obligation to be here right now, I would not be with you um, because I just can't wait. So first, I'd like to find out a little bit about where you grew up and what some of the books were that you loved as a kid. I grew up in Los Angeles, and uh, we lived in the Valley, the Valley, for a really long time until I was about 11 years old. And then my mom remarried, and we moved to a completely different part of the city. And if any of you guys are familiar with LA, you know, like it's like you are moving to a different town, essentially. Like everything changes because everything is so far apart. And we moved to this part of town that was, for lack of a better word, super waspy. I became one of two Jewish girls in my class. It was me and, believe it or not, Alona Thal, the rabbi's daughter. <laughs> and it felt like crash landing on an alien planet. I mean, it was just incredibly strange. And, and I did not feel like I was uh, speaking the same language as anybody else anymore. But, I mean, as a kid, I read sort of whatever was put in front of me. I would like to tell you I was a voracious reader, but I was, I was but... Um, I was very accepting of sort of whatever came my way and whatever I discovered. And it wasn't until I hit junior high and the seventh grade that reading became um, survival, essentially. And, mm -hmm. and writing did, too, at the same time. 
Um, what was it, it, it uh, the, the culture shock like? How did you deal with that change from one, one school to another? Well, I feel slightly ridiculous telling the story on the heels of this, given, given your experience with culture shock. But what it really was was that um, this was a school full of kids whose mothers didn't work and who came from intact families and who um, played volleyball and had money for things that I did not. And, and it wasn't that I was a have-not. We did fine, but it was, um, it, it was a culture that I just didn't understand. And it was a, you know, I slept on, I, I wore hand-me-downs. I slept on a hand-me-down mattress, and when I outgrew the bed, we put the mattress on the floor, you know, like, and, uh, and that was the way it worked, but I, I went from being surrounded by people who I felt comfortable with to being afraid to invite somebody over to sleep over at my house. Um, and being afraid to go to other people's houses because I was afraid I did not know the right thing to do, the right way to speak, the right way to behave. So it was, uh, I guess it was more of a, a class issue than anything else. Um, but I think it was also a values issue. I came from this tiny, weird little school where they encourage kids to write poetry and express themselves and be very Los Angeles. And then all of a sudden, I was in this place where being smart was not cool or interesting. And where you were expected to sort of hide that part of yourself. That was not the way you wanted to be. So the book that you named is Dune by Frank Herbert. Yeah. I'm sure almost everybody knows about Dune, but for, for those who don't, can you describe Dune? Dune is the story of a young man named Paul Atreides who basically is forced to leave his home and everything he knows and comes to a planet known for being hostile, but that is also integral to the economy of the entire universe, essentially, or known universe. And there he discovers that he is in fact a chosen one and is going to lead a revolution. So the good side of it is it's a story that tells you that it is important to be smart and prepared and brave. The bad side of it is it's a classic white savior story and deeply sexist, but as a kid, it was almost like a survival guide to junior high and high school. Wow, that's a, such a powerful way of, of looking at it. Do you remember how you found the book or who put it in your yeah, hands? This is a little bit similar to your story. I remember um, it was my, I was in the seventh grade and because I was a nerd, the, my safe space was the library and I, there was one little carol what I would go and write and read. And I came into the library at one point and I have no idea which librarian put it there, but there was a table full of science fiction and fantasy books that just said discover new worlds. And I happened to pick up a paperback of Dune and I was immersed in it immediately. And I had not really read heavy sci-fi, which really Dune is. If you try to pick it up now, it's, he hits you with a thousand terms in the space of like 10 pages. It's not a very gentle introduction to science fiction, but I found it so compelling and it was really the first book where I fell into a world and did not want to come out of it. Wonderful, thank you. And, and uh, now I'm gonna move on to Rich Benjamin. Uh, now, by way of disclosure, um, I first met Rich when an extraordinary proposal came across my desk at Hyperion Books. Um, and it was a proposal for a book to be called Whitopia, later renamed Searching for Whitopia. And uh, not only was I nuts for this proposal to the extent to which I immediately uh, bought the rights to edit and publish it, but I was nuts for its author. And uh, Rich and I have been friends ever since. And one of the great joys of my personal and reading life has been provided by Rich Benjamin. Thank you. Rich is a writer, anthropologist, and cultural critic. 
As I mentioned, he's the author of Searching for Whitopia, and he's now working on both a memoir and a novel, um, so he's a uh, triple threat. Um, he's written for the New York Times, The Guardian, The New Yorker, and many more. And you may also almost certainly have seen him on MSNBC, PBS, and CNN, where Rich does a preternaturally brilliant job of keeping his cool. But today, we're going to go back. We're going to go way back to a time before I met Rich uh, when he was in college. And we're going to dive right in to the book that Rich mentioned as being such an important one in his life, beloved by Toni Morrison. So, uh, Rich, how did you come across this book? So, I came across my favorite book in college called Beloved. And, you know, I was one of these people who had probably too much fun in college. I could have studied a little harder. And I took an English seminar about contemporary American literature. And I did not know of Toni Morrison's reputation outside of Beloved. And we have to remember that in those days, Beloved wasn't necessarily a slam and categorically a critical success at the time. I remember there are a lot of snide critics, Stanley Crouch being among them, who said, this is not great literature and is getting all this acclaim because she's a woman, because she's this, that, and the other. So at the time, it wasn't self-evident what a, a brilliant book it was. But Will, when I first read it, I knew immediately that this would change my life and this would change how I think about books. And uh, can you, I mean, again, I'm sure most of us know Beloved, but if you could describe the book or your, your recollection of the book a little bit, that would be great. Yes, so I've read the book 11 times since, but my first recollection of this book is about a woman who's escaped slavery and basically killed her daughter so that her daughter would not have that same fate. And without ruining the specificity of the plot, she buys a tombstone and the question becomes, can she spell out beloved in remembrance of her daughter? But it's about so much more than that to me. You know, it's about flight, it's about memory, it's about family relationships, it's about relationships to their ancestors, and it's about how you account for a past that has been totally misrepresented to you. And can you tell us a little bit about your life at the time? I mean, what was your life like when you uh, encountered Beloved? And I, did you know you wanted to be a writer yet? No, I did not know I wanted to be a writer. And I remember vividly, I was a senior in college, and I, I, I just have this vague memory of, you know, reading the book as being assigned. And, you know, I had a lot of friends. It was a very good time in my life. I was having a lot of fun. But I wasn't in the mode of what does it mean to be a writer and thinking about becoming a writer. So. I could say my life became more serious many years after I left college, and I stuck with that book. And as I've said, I've read it about 11 times since. Now, I gather you still have the original copy that you read. Is that right? I do. One of my best pastimes in life is to collect autographed books, you know, as a book lover. So I have every one from... I have an autographed book of from Barack Obama, and then I have 
an autographed book from you know radical queer punk poets in Brooklyn, and I just cherish autographed books. But where Beloved is concerned, I kept my discount paperback copy that I bought as a college senior over these years. And about three years ago, the new press was having an annual function, and lo and behold, they were honoring Toni Morrison. And I'm so happy I had enough of my wits about me to bring my copy from college to the event. And there she was sitting in her wheelchair, and I kind of wheedled past the security. I kind of weaseled my way past her gatekeepers. And I was just honest. I said, uh, this book has meant the world to me. And I would be so honored if you'd sign the copy. And then she, she gave me a little of a fish eye. And then she said, of course. And then she took the, the paperback. And this is what I never expected. She started to rifle through my notes in the margin, and she said, "Oh no! Let's see what you wrote about my book. <laughs> Let's see what you think." And I was mortified. I was hoping I hadn't written anything idiotic about uh, her book. So, and then she autographed it. But that's another story. Is produced by Katie Ferguson with editing help from Alyssa Martino. Thanks to Camila Salazar. If you'd like to learn more about the books we've mentioned in this week's episode, you can find out more in our show notes. If you've been enjoying the show, please be sure to rate and review on iTunes. It really helps others discover the program. And subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If there's a book that changed your life, we want to hear about it send us an email at anotherstory@macmillan.com. We'll be back with our next episode in two weeks. I'm Will Schwalbe. Thanks so much for listening.